Hey guys, it's Lockie Milne. You're listening to the CinePod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing better every day that I don't have COVID-19. I'm very glad to hear that. I'm glad you're not worse because that that also happens sometimes. People get better, people get worse. I'm glad you're you're better. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been concerned about that, and my wife has too. And we've been very intentionally trying to get as much rest as we can, just because we've all heard the stories of people who were like, "I thought it was over," and then it came roaring back. Not to jinx myself, but I've been kind of out of the woods for about two weeks now. I don't I don't think it's coming back, but I will say that like the fatigue and, uh, and periodic cough uh, still still kind of hang out and uh, it rattles know, your nerves I, I, a bit I bet I know that uh, I said it last week I know I've been saying it since the pandemic started but take this seriously and uh, yeah it was you know the 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 heat of it was kind of hell on earth and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And I hope that anyone listening to us would heed my warning and do whatever you can do to never, ever, ever get COVID-19. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, we'll all be vaccinated very soon. I, I was heartened to see that a greater percentage of Americans anyway, more Americans have been vaccinated than have had the disease. So that's good, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's going in the right direction. Saturday yeah, night it's be- better than a kick in the ass, I guess. <laughs> Uh, Saturday Night Live has been mocking people who think that they are doing all that they can do, but are actually not following the the, the guidelines at all. And anyone who's who's watching Saturday Night Live sort of uh, from the beginning of this most current season will see all kinds of pandemic related sketches, which I'm glad that they are finding the humor because it is dark days. <laughs> it is dark days out yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, and, it's not without humor, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty awful. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know. For a long time, I felt like our our opening segment uh, was often us talking about COVID-19 stuff. And then, you know, like the moment I got it, I was, you know, it's like finding out you're possessed by the devil. You know, like like the worst thing that could happen to anyone on the planet is happening to me right now, which is not true. Uh, but, um, but but yes, it, it potentially. But, yeah. But yeah, there's that moment of like, oh, I have a positive result. Uh, I guess I'm going to die now. Bye, everybody. And, you know, it's it's just terrifying. So um, anyway, everyone out there, stay safe. Uh, Ilya, who is on the show today? Lachlan Milne is on the show today, a very talented cinematographer, and we had He's a amazing. great, great conversation with him, and uh, we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. But He uh, shot the new movie, Minari, which is getting all kinds of uh, Oscar love. People are way into that movie, and, and for very good reasons. And nominated for a Golden Globe in the foreign language category, which is, which is kind of funny. Uh, yeah, there's <laughs> a, a little bit of a controversy about that, given that uh, last year, Parasite, which mm. is a Korean film, all in Korean, one best picture. And then this year, a, a Korean movie that's kind of, I'd say well, probably like it's 80% an American, in Korean. It's an American movie. It's an American movie, but it's like primarily in Korean. Yeah, probably uh, but, 60%. But there is English. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, you know, uh, yeah, is 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 getting uh, f- best foreign language. Uh, I mean, I, I sort of feel like that category has always been a, a little 
a little bonkers and Parasite winning last year kind of throws that in, into stark relief that, you know, if we're going to say the best picture of the, uh, of the year could be a foreign language film, then why have a separate category? Mm. I think it's just to make the Oscar ceremony a, a little longer. We like it longer. <laughs> I think it's to show that they're a little more international, that there's actually yeah. like this, uh, you know, this this spirit of camaraderie from around the world. But uh, but no, that, that that might not be it. So eh, who well, knows? Also, it could just be virtue signaling like everything else. So <laughs> um, so Ilya, we have an interesting uh, close focus to get into. And it was uh, sparked by a listener of the podcast reaching out to us on Facebook. It's true. Uh, a listener named Josh uh, reached out to us, and I'm just going to read his uh, his email right now. It's a, it's a little bit long, but uh, I'll I'll do my best, and I think we should discuss. As he gave you permission for for uh, us to discuss, so we'll do that. <clears throat> Here goes. Josh writes, "Hey Ben and Ilya." Ben, glad to hear you're back from COVID in today's podcast. I've listened now Thank to you, the Josh. Sh- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've listened now to the show for almost two years, which is more than what I usually commit to anything. Uh, mm. I'm not the sort of person to message shows or people any type of fan mail, but have a situation that I thought I'd put out there and love to get your thoughts. Uh, if not, then at least I get to look like a crazy member of a fan club sending you a thumbs up for an amazing show. My situation is I am currently a local government employee in Australia and been doing my job for 11 years. I earn decent money and it's afforded me a good and comfortable lifestyle. However, my workplace isn't amazing. Despite what I do in my job is pretty amazing. Almost two years ago, I realized I was in a rut and wasn't having a great time at work. In fact, less than a great time. During this time, it dawned on me that I never followed my passion in film and television when I left school. In 2019, I applied for film school and was accepted in Brisbane and was super excited. Planned to start in 2021 and give myself a year to wrap up my current job. As COVID hit, I pushed back another year to begin in 2022. As an aside, I think that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because Way to go. In- yeah, because the industry took a hit. Study looked to be difficult, and I wanted a year to remain in stable employment and not face a COVID word, I think you meant world, uh, as a student without a job. It has, however, given me time to reflect on the terrifying thought of everything I'm giving up to pursue a dream. It w- I would be 32 when I start at film school next year. The question that race through my head are... Is it the right time to study in film? Has my time passed? What will be the opportunities for me if I gave it all up and studied in a world post-COVID? Would love your thoughts on it. But again, if my question is too much or I was rambling, just wanted to say I love the show. It's been a great part of my life uh, through some dark times and kept me focused on something I've always loved and had a passion for always look forward to thursday that's right it's it, our show launches on thursday and the other on the other side of the world uh great ah. sh- great show guys and uh i think that was a a really phenomenal email a really great uh question and not only ben did you respond to him privately but i think we should talk about it here too because josh is not the only one i am sure facing this sort of dilemma and having these sorts of questions i mean honestly i've been working in this business for 20 years and I'm almost 50 
and I'm kind of terrified myself. Am I aging out? But I understand the fear of you're you're starting out. You're starting out maybe a little later than some other people. Is it too late? And it brings to mind Julia Cameron wrote an amazing book called The Artist's Way that uh, I, I can't recommend highly enough. I've probably it's probably been a short end of mine at some point or another, and it's uh, kind of a book about sparking your creative mind like getting finding your your creative source and giving yourself some kind of exercises to kind of connect to your creativity it's it's an amazing book and it's great a great read and in it somebody says to her like do you know like i think it was someone who was trying to write a novel or something like that and they they were like do you know how old i will be by the time i actually get this done and she said and this always sticks with me she said the same age that you'll be if you don't and it sounds glib but it's true. Are most people in the industry younger? Especially like if you go to, if you're on a film crew. Uh, I mean, to a degree, yes. I I, I was on a I Can was I uh, doing second unit. I, I think please, I, I think please. that's only true at the entry level. I think at the entry level, when mm. when, oh, yeah, when you first fair. start out. Yes, there's a lot of people who they're young and hungry. I'm sure if you're on a Clint Eastwood set, everyone's, you know, the youngest people are 45. You know, not even necessarily just a Clint Eastwood set, but I would say a, a high-end professional set. Uh, there's a lot of gray hair. You want the people who've been doing it for 20 years. You want the people who, who have all that expertise, and you can probably afford them when you're working that way. And the, the people fresh out of film school or the youngest people are not always the best employees, Shockingly, They're, they may they may have <laughs> some good skills for their job. But um, but really, once you get to a certain level, I think age matters less depending on what what it is that you're doing. So, of course. Um, and I'll share uh, to to the people who I brought up to uh, uh, to him in, in my private conversation with him. Uh, one was when I went to film school. So, you know, I was, what, 21 years old and I was, you know, like all the other pukes in my film school. And by far. The best cinematographer was a woman named Nancy Crowell, and Nancy had like a full career working in magazines, and she was, I want to say in her mid-30s, and she came in, and uh, honestly, there was nobody who even compared to her, in my opinion, uh, when it came to cinematographers, and uh, when it was time to do my thesis project, like, I basically begged her to do it, and, you know, there was nobody more important to get to do it uh, than than her. And Nancy came out to L.A., and I hope I'm not speaking out, out of turn. Uh, she sort of focused on producing when she first came out here instead of cinematography. And her attitude was, I don't want to be carrying a bunch of gear for the for the real cinematographer and breaking my back. And she didn't she didn't uh, really pursue cinematography, although right now she's a very, very successful stills photographer located up near Seattle. I'm still in touch with her. I, I, you know, she's she's got, you know, just an impeccable eye. Another person who I brought up was my friend Christian Jans, who's shot a few things for me over the years. And Christian was like a fully barred lawyer. He was he'd gone to law school. And uh, I think even at the time he had three kids and his dream was to be a cinematographer and he uh, applied to and got into the American Film Institute and you know he's still kind of working on that dream and you know I think I think Christian's a, a really uh, he's a great shooter I, I bring up both of these people because they would be what you know what what we used to call non-traditional students <laughs> in that they you know were starting a little bit later to get into it and what I don't know and won't pretend to know is what the what the industry is like in Australia 
I do know that Australia has an amazing film industry and film community, and we've talked to several DPs uh, who who started in Australia, including people La- like Mandy in, Walker, including on this show, Lachlan Milne. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Sorry, I should have thought of that. So, to me, in my, in my mind, the the only thing that you have going against you is that, like, when you're 22 years old, you'll put up with any amount of bullshit that anyone will throw at you. And when you're in your thirties, you're sort of like, Hey, I'm not going to work 47 straight hours for your (laughs) short film that, you know, might get into a festival one day. Yeah. Your acceptance level for bullshit definitely goes down as as you have more life experience. So (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and I mean like for me, honestly, like my, I still accept too much bullshit to this day, but, um, I'll say, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, no, in all reality, I think that if that, if that's the dream, you would do well to pursue that dream and and push for it. And, uh, you know, of course, the big unknown is what's the world going to be like after COVID? Will there be a world after COVID or is COVID with us for, you know, the foreseeable future, which is a distinct possibility. But if it is, we're we're already figuring out how to deal with it and still, you know, make movies and TV. I saw a, a film shoot just today uh, when I took my son to the park. People are doing it. So no time like the present, but I also think it was probably a a wise idea to not get rid of the good paying job that you can do during the pandemic until, you know, we're going to know probably by this summer exactly how screwed we are with COVID and if it's with us forever or if we're going to sort of be able to get back to normal ish soonish. Let me offer a a, a slightly, a slightly different opinion, a a different opinion on, on Josh's plate here. I think it's totally acceptable to do what you love on nights and weekends. I don't feel that you have to make your passion your nine to five. And Mm. I think that a lot of people who try to do that instead of doing something they're good at, find a new level of frustration, especially when you're talking about a industry and a career that really doesn't care if it's your passion they really don't care how much you you love it they really only tell me about it (laughs) they really only care about a few things but if you're able to make a a decent living and have a decent standard of your daily life and your income and you can save money and everything else it's totally acceptable to me to find other like-minded people uh teach yourself via online offerings and other forms of distance learning you don't have to necessarily be in film school to learn all this and i would actually argue that so much foundational education is now available online that you'd have a huge leg up if you did go to school and you'd already learned a bunch of things online in fact i i, I mean i'll uh, i'll say that we've been talking about at the cinepod doing a sort of an online school and i hate to almost mention that or bring that up here because so many people have their own training program in their course and a bunch of youtube ads about like buy my training buy my training but I, th- I think that really for, for people like you, Josh, you would be like ideally suited to have something that is sort of a, a distance learning and maybe where you're at in, uh, in Australia isn't the right place for, for the industry, but I think it is possible no matter where you are to get the education that you need these days in particular. And, uh, if from a technical perspective, the gear has never been more affordable and never been more plentiful. So there's all kinds of ways to, to learn. It doesn't have to be the, the traditional method. I I mean, I agree with you 100%. I would say also, though, one of the recurring questions that we ask people is, you know, film school or not. And we've had plenty of people who were film school people and plenty of people who weren't. To me, the benefit of film school is 
dedicated studio time that is a lot harder to notch out of your life when you have a life. Sure. So when when your life is going to film school, then then you're going to do that. And then your connections. Yeah, the connections. Yeah, Yeah. the connections that people make in film school. You know, I always think about Larry Fong talking about meeting Zack Snyder and uh, Tarsem Singh at in film school and then like working with these guys for decades. So I think that there's enormous benefit to going to film school. Agree. I also believe that there's an enormous value to having a a stable life, which is a thing that you're kind of giving up when you decide to pursue a career in this. Because even if you uh, the most successful people who are making great money at this are still, you know, kind of going from job to job to job, no job lasts forever and you're also um to get to that point where you have anything like resembling stability you are going to have some years of rocky instability and you know it's different for everybody some people dive right in and get working and you know they get in with the right loop and they just keep working with the same people and and they're great but yeah i mean you know the struggle is real and if you've been listening to the podcast for for two years then you've heard uh many stories of the struggle but also you're listening to the people who succeeded and the people who were able to eke out a career in it and and you know there are plenty of people who have a harder time doing that but anyway i think it's a it's a great question and uh i think that you i, I don't mean to speak for you Ilya, because uh i'm sure you, you will be happy to chime in on on your side but i would say it is not too late you can start right now start it, it's not it, it wouldn't be too late if you were 70 years old but certainly if you're in your 30s you, there's plenty of time to to catch up and learn your craft and and dive on in. A hundred percent would agree, and uh, I will say that I got my you know, start in film education actually at junior colleges before actually going to a to a, a formal film school. And me uh, too. Quite a few people in the junior college program were older. In fact, forties, uh, fifties, sixties. There was someone in their seventies who who uh, mostly wanted to be a writer, and they they could absolutely pursue that but they did feel like you know they had a, a a window they're like you know i don't really want this to take forever i really would like to get something i write turned into a real movie but everyone's kind of got a different path and a different way to go about it and 100 percent, you can kind of do almost any of these things at any time depending on what it is that you want to do and how how you want to try and get there there was a guy in my film school that you just reminded me of who was like in his 40s and he had been a very successful accountant and he had invested really well. Mm. And he'd made like, he, he told us he'd made like a million bucks, stuck it in an interest bearing account and just lived off of the interest. Good for and, him. And then he was going from year to year, like studying anything he was interested in. And the year that he was with us, he was, you know, he was just interested in making films and wanted to learn how they were made. And so he went to film school. Totally valid, totally valid, you know, thing to do. And uh, I'm sure that he is probably a very well-rounded person being able to study whatever his interest. I mean, being that sort of uh, a polymath is, uh, I think, is fantastic. Why not? If you can do it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, hey, let's get to the interview. Josh, thank you very much for the uh, the question. And it sparked a lot of uh, great conversation, both uh, here on the show and offline. And anyone else out there listening to the sound of my voice who uh, wants to ask a question or wants us to give some feedback or something, please hit us up on Facebook. Or uh, We are yeah. always struggling for what our close focus is going to be. So hey, if you I can give us a good struggling. topic. Struggling, we're we're drowning. We're just we're. we're I think we're, we had seven options this week, so I don't know. <laughs> that's true. We did have a lot. <laughs> All right, let's let's get to the interview with Lachlan Milne. All right. 
the Cinematography Podcast interview. So we are here talking to Lockie Milne in Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much for hopping on Zoom and talking to us from across the world. That's a pleasure. It's great to be here. You've got an amazing new movie called Minari that is not quite out yet, but we've got a chance mm. to see it. It's absolutely beautiful. Oh, you did see it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, we got a screener, so I, I watched oh, it. Oh, fantastic. My, yeah, my wife and I watched it last night. Yes, it's really great. And what's interesting, uh, and we'll get into this, is in a way how similar it is to a lot of your work, but also how different. Like, it's a very naturalistic film, you know, even though it's a period piece, kind of looking at it in contrast to things like uh, Stranger Things or, uh, you know, your work with Taiki. Taika Watiti. I can never get his name right. I'm always embarrassed about saying one day I'm going to meet him and I'm going to be humiliated. Anyway. Um, mate, that's, that's the beautiful thing about being in this part of the world is we just rely on mate. <laughs> uh, here we're like, hey, you default. Chief, we never champ. know anybody's name. We don't take time. We just, oh, hey, mate, how's it going? <laughs> so my first question is always just about your general approach. When you read a script, what do you see? What, what, what's the process going on in your head as, as you're looking at a script to start the process of turning it into a series of pictures? When I was, when I was in the process of dropping out of film school when I was about 20, I think, <laughs> I was either 19 or 20, because I was doing a lot of, you know, you know, work on low budget Australian, you know, television commercials or credit card movies, movies which were literally paid with by a credit card that were that low budget. I, I remember going and seeing Emily with a friend of mine and I came out of the cinema with him and he said, oh, what did you, what did you think of the movie? And I said, oh, it was amazing. You know, like they were using these lenses and this color and, you know, I love this crane move and stuff. And he's like, no, 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 what did you think of the film? And I just stopped at that point and I thought, I... I I actually can't remember what the film was really about. You know, I was so immersed in the technical side of it. And from that point on, I made um, a promise to myself to never think about filmmaking from that point of view again. Mm. Um, and that's essentially how I approach looking at scripts as well. It's like I just look at it simply f as, a, as a piece of storytelling um, and as an audience member, I suppose. You know, is this the kind of film that either I'd like to see or, or what kind of version of this film... Do I think this is and how does it resonate with me on whatever level it might might be? So, And it's, it's easy now. Initially, in the, in the early days when I was reading scripts, I was still kind of shifting towards how, I'm, how I might like to execute that from the technical side of things, but I don't do that anymore, um, which, is, which is really quite cathartic and, and releasing because you just literally, it's like reading a book, you know, you're just literally absor you know, absorbing the story for the story's sake. So I, I always make a point of, and it's the same thing when it, whenever I speak to a director for the first time, I think that first conversation has to just be from, you know, one human to another. I think you mm -hmm. have to, A, understand if you can, you know, get in the trenches and, um, and still be able to have a glass of wine at the end of each day, you know, like, are you a good person? Do you have the same moral compass as me? You know, et cetera, all that sort of, sort of stuff. On a human level, do we feel like we can um, be friends, you know, and then after that comes everything else. But, um, but that's always the way that I approach it is, is the story is always the most important thing. And it's, it's everything will follow after that. Once you find some kind of common ground. How important is it to be friends? That's something that honestly, I don't think has ever come up. Like, like, is it important to, to work with people that you like? I think it's really important. Yeah. I, I, may, I just, I mean, life's too short with people you to, to work with people you don't. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know, because, you know, there is such a commitment on a emotional, personal, family level when you do um, long-form work, when you do, whether it be a television show or or a movie, because it is all-consuming. It takes over yeah. everything. And, you know, your your comrades at work become your family to a certain degree because you're spending 
just about every waking hour either thinking about the film, talking about the film or making it to the detriment of your own personal life sometimes, particularly, you know, your husbands, wives, children, etc. And I think people work the best when they're comfortable and they feel like they're in an environment where they can contribute on any level. And I think the base level of that has to be respect and a form of kindness and, a, and you have to be empathetic to other people because it gets very tense. Filmmaking is essentially problem-solving, for want of a better word, most of the time because stuff changes or the weather changes or the actor's late or the wardrobe didn't turn up or something, something that nobody's thought about. And, you know, you have two options. One option is you can get the shits and throw your toys out of the pram and go, this is what I signed up for. Or <laughs> you can surround yourself with like-minded people who will rally behind you um, if you, A, keep your cool and B, always have a plan B. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the base level of all of that, particularly from a director and a cinematographer, is whether it be for that period of time in your life, you might just be friends for that project. doesn't mean that you're not friends. It's just that that's what your relationship is defined by at that particular point. And then you might have a number of those throughout your career. Um, but I still have, you know, I was texting Tyker last night because he's over here prepping for, I'm like, what are you doing? Do you want to go out for dinner? And he's so I'm going to go and catch up with him next week. Um, because we've known each other for quite a while now. And he's one of those relationships where we've become really good friends as well. So I think friendship is really key. Because you respect your friends mm -hmm. and respect is a key element to filmmaking, I think. Interesting. And and uh, also, more importantly, you're able to go to dinner with people in Australia now? Oh, wow. What, I, I know. Sorry, I, I instantly regretted saying that when I said it now because I know a lot of people can't do that. So now yeah. I'm shrouded with guilt. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. Now, yeah, now I'm very good. Don't, don't be sorry. <laughs> That's totally fine. <laughs> I'm just jealous. That's fine. Yeah, um, I know a bit. So, uh, at what point in the process for you then does it turn into the uh, technical breakdown, the, the figuring out of lenses and filters and what mm -hmm. kind of lights and you know the I, I wouldn't say like where are you going to park the generator stuff, but the the, the creative the calls that are that are going to drive yeah. all the creative of the film. Yep. It's, I normally don't start thinking like that until after the first call with a director. Mm. Do he, he or she and I see similarly, do we want to make the same kind of film? Like, or if the version of the film that they want to make is slightly different to, to, to how I kind of maybe am starting to think about doing it, is that a better version of the film? And if, if it is, then great. I didn't think about it that way, but that's why yeah. they're director and that's their vision and that's fantastic. But it's... It's normally after we, you know, when you hang up that call and then you go, that person's pretty cool. I feel like I like them already. You know, I feel like it's very comfortable. Nobody had to force that any particular kind of conversation or I learnt more about that person as who they are rather than strictly just talking about the film exclusively all the time. Mm -hmm. Going out to dinner and just literally talking about the job the entire time isn't very fun. That's not how you get to know anybody. So after that call, if I feel like they're interested in collaborating with me and I want to collaborate with them and I feel like this has some life, this project has some interest that feels like we you know, connected on any particular level, I think then after that, I really start to delve deeper because then I'm invested in the project, you know, mm -hmm. then, then I'm in, I, you know, cause the key thing is I want to, the, I want the director and I to, to have a good relationship from the get go. You know, I don't want that to be difficult. Um, and then I'll start to break down the film and I'll, I'll pull out a bunch of references. Um, I'll, I'll pitch my idea of how I see the film. You know, is it a single camera film? Is it, is it, you know, is it anamorphic? Is it spherical 239? Is it film or is it digital? Is it whatever? Um, so that always kind of comes later, I think for me. So you said that you uh, you dropped out of film school. I did. Wait, let's work up to dropping out of film school because when did mm -hmm. the bug hit you to go to film school in the first place? 
Um, I was quite lucky in the sense that I, I had a really clear idea of what I wanted to do from quite an early age. I, I think it was like 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a place called Adelaide, which is the capital city of South Australia, which is, if you look at a map of Australia, it's the bottom in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a small, it was a small town. There's only, I don't know, maybe 2 million people, maybe less than that. Maybe it was less than that back then. But uh, my father was actually a director um, and my mum was in the early days a flatbed Steenbeck editor. So they used oh, to wow. shoot a lot of you know documentaries and small television commercials and docudramas, I suppose, on 16mm. And so I'd go to their production office and I'd play, go downstairs and mum would be sitting there editing stuff on the platters and they'd be, I'd go and jump. They used to have these big old um, cotton white bins that would have all the or the two perf 16 mil film that are run off into that from the splicer. And so I just, you know, jump into that and pull it out and then get in the shit for, you know, scratching a whole bunch of stuff that they might use again at some point. I needed that one frame. hundred percent. Yeah. You've ruined it. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, one thing led to another and I would end up going onto set. And so it was just kind of like dad's work. And then mm-hmm. I realized dad's work was a film set. So, um, I was always fascinated by the people. The people were always so interesting to me. You know, they were, really lovely but you know they that whole work hard play hard thing they were just really good fun people to be around everybody was really professional when they had to be and and would have a laugh when the time seemed right so yeah then I I kind of gravitated towards stills photography I thought for a while that I really wanted to be a photojournalist because I loved the the simple storytelling of the still image of just Mm -hmm. just a single frame and I love how honest photojournalism is I think but uh, when I was at school, I, we moved, when I was about 13 or so, we moved from Adelaide up to Sydney because Dad wanted to kind of broaden his horizons and, and try a bigger pond, so to speak, as far as work went, you know, to see how far he could go there. And then I went to a, um, I went to a private school that was very regimented and, and religious and was very different from how I thought I saw my kind of moral compass heading towards. Um, it was maths and science and chemistry, very traditional in a, in a single sex school. Like it was a male only school until I think the year, year 11 or 12, which is the last two years. But um, there was a, like a small handful of people um, that I kind of gravitated towards. And one thing that that school had, because it was, it was a, I think it was quite expensive, uh, is that they had this phenomenal photography lab. Um, so they had dark rooms um, oh, wow. and enlargers and stuff. So, and a really great photography club. So there was a friend of mine, Nick Littlemore, who's, who's, Probably the only guy I still speak to at school. He's a musician. He lives in Los Angeles now. He's in a bunch of bands. He's done very well for himself, you know, scored Cirque du Soleil and et cetera. And, you oh, know, wow. We kind of grew up together and we were kind of like the arty guys who would be more into making films on Super 8 and taking still photographs and experimenting with exposures. And we'd go to industrial estates at sunset and take, you know, moody black and white photos that was for us at the time, you know, nobody's ever thought of doing anything as creative as this. Clearly Uh we are the only people in history who are experiencing (laughs) this at this moment. And then of course, course, it's funny, he sent me some of them the other day and I'm like, it's just pure teen angst, identity crisis work. (laughs) We all have to go through that. (laughs) It was great. I loved every minute of it. And it was was funny um, thinking back on it again, but... But uh, so, yeah, I, w- I was always lucky that I kind of, I felt like I had the clarity that I, 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 every, all kind of key parts of my life, I kind of steered towards one end goal. And thankfully, I never changed my mind from that. Did your parents ever, like, were your parents encouraging you to go in the film business or they were like, oh man, it's a rat race, you know, yeah. did, were they discouraging at all? 
I don't ever remember. I, look, my, my dad was because he it kind of didn't quite work out the way that he wanted it to when he moved up to Sydney, and he he didn't have the success that he was anticipating, and so he gave the game away when I was about fifteen or sixteen. But by that point, I, the die for me had already kind of been cast, and I was kind of moving in that direction. So he was very clear on me finishing university and coming out with a degree. He thought that that was incredibly important, and so we kind of butted heads a little bit on that because I would go to university. It was only a bachelor of fine arts. It wasn't anything that was going to change the world but um i was getting offers to to work on these little credit card films in in the background of that but it would mean that i would leave university for two months and go 850 kilometers northwest in the middle of summer and stand out in you know 45 degree australian heat which is you know like 110 or something like that in Fahrenheit and stand out there for 14 hours a day in the belting sun um, as a standby props guy trying to work out what it was that a standby props person was. And then, I, and then I'd come back to, to university and they'd say, where's A, B and C projects? And I'd go, well, I haven't done them and I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to do them. So eventually I just stopped going. So my dad was really, he was disappointed for a little while about um, me not going to university. But then as you know, the years went on and I, I managed to get a little bit more success, he's changed his opinion. But mum was always cool with it. Mum was always fine with it. She she understood that, you know, my mum has always been whatever, you know, whatever makes you happy and whatever, you know, lead your best life, you know, so she was always cool with it. So when you were in college, you were working on props. You, you, you were in the art department. Mm-hmm. Started um, in the art department, yeah. When when did the switch go to cinematography? Um, I was always interested in, in, I always loved the camera, but the art department was a way for me to get in and actually kind of get a better idea as a, as a young adult how a film set worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of like a, like a full immersion, you know, uh, um, you know, like uh, if you could absorb things via osmosis, I guess, like just by being around them, I could, you know, ask questions to the, of the gaffer and the grip and find out exactly what everybody did because I had an idea, but I didn't know with any great degree of detail what everybody's role was. So yeah. in the art department, you know, it was it was brutal because you know you're the first one there and the last one to go, um, and there. oh, it's it's I've got nothing but the utmost respect for the art department because they just you know it's you just get flogged relentlessly. Yeah, you get your ass kicked. It's all all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it was literally just a foot in the door. It got me onto a film set to then eventually say to people, you know, this is what I'm really interested in, and people kind of picked that up because I would always end up gravitating towards the camera department. And it was all it was 16 mil and 35 mil. It was all film. So yeah, you know, I'd, I'd after work I'd go to the loader and they'd give me a magazine and they'd show me how to load it. And I'd you know, it was a I think it was an Arton XT XTR Prod, a 16 mil camera mm. um, on that particular film. And so I'd lace the mags up and I'd learn how to do all that. So that you know, it was kind of that was that was like the real university for me really. So then when I went back to college, it was it didn't feel like I was getting what I really wanted out of it which is essentially why I stopped going because for me, the real education I was getting was on film sets. Now, was there ever any attraction to like, well, if I keep doing this props thing, I could eventually be a production designer. Were you ever uh, interested in, in moving up in the art department or were you just getting your foot in the door in making films so that you could eventually gravitate towards cinematography? That's essentially, it's the latter really. That's essentially what it was. It was just an opportunity for me to be able to get onto a set mm-hmm. um, and show people that I was hardworking and committed and, paid attention and could take notes and um, a brief and expedite that. It was really just to get my foot in the door. You're right. So, and, and I mean, the Australian industry is, is uh, very different than, uh, than the industry here in America, or is it? I don't know. Actually, you would know better than I could. It is definitely. Yeah. 
So mm-hmm. uh, how easy is it to move around there? Because I feel like here, if you're known in one department, it's like, you know, murder to try and say like, nope, never mind. I'm going to go do this other thing now. Yeah, no, you're right. It's yeah, it, we call it. It's kind of like an pigeonhole, right? Like, um, yeah. and that's kind of what it was like for me when I was a camera assistant and then wanted to to transition into being a cinematographer. Mm-hmm. That was really difficult for me, and that took a long time because people only knew me as Lockie the camera assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, even though in the background I was shooting, you know, I bought a little standard sixteen SR one um, from a from a film school, and I'd get a bunch of short ends on jobs, and I'd shoot music videos for friends bands or i do short films or you know just teach myself exposure go out you know take the camera and go and shoot some 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 time lapse and try and bracket the exposure so i could like get the sun setting in a way where it it didn't feel like the iris was clicking over and you could feel like the it felt like a smooth like all that little stuff i'd kind of do on my own yeah um but it's also it's such a catch-22 situation, isn't it? Like you need the job to get the real, but you need the real to get the job. So how do you do that if you don't show a little bit of initiative and do stuff yourself? And, and then I was 25 years old, I think, when I was doing that. So I'm 42 now. So it was all film. Like there was a little bit of HD kicking around, but it wasn't at the level it is now where it, it's a direct competitor to the resolution and quality of film, whereas back then it just it just looked like digital video. Yeah. There was one time where I was doing a television commercial with an agency as a camera assistant, and then a month after that, I was the cinematographer with the same agency. Mm-hmm. And for them, I remember that look in their face. They're like, "Hang on, hang on a second. Were you what's going on? Like you were the assistant the other day, and now you're the head of department, and you're shooting. Like, how does that happen that quickly? What's going on?" And it was fine in the end, but it was a, it took a little bit of fast talking, a little bit of convincing, and then that was the key moment where I thought, well, I can't do I can't do both. I just have to sever all camera assisting ties and and just completely commit to being a cinematographer, regardless of what the end result may or may not be, because it's too confusing. To your point, I was just getting pigeonholed as, as one thing, whereas I, it was for me it was always just a stepping stone to the end desired result, which was to be a cinematographer. So at that point, I then, I think it was three months, I literally didn't work and I completely ran out of money um, because I turned down all the DPs that I was working with and said, this is what I'm going to do now. And they would they would keep asking if I, you know, a couple of weeks ago passed and they say, you sure you don't want to come? I've got this Audi commercial or whatever it is. Why don't you come and just do a couple of days? It'll be fine. It's like, no, 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 I can't. I have to stick to my guns. I picked a date, which was uh, July the 1st, I can't remember what year it was, which is the end of the financial year is on the, on the, the 30th of June. So I picked a date and said, this is the date that I become a cinematographer and put it out to the rest of the world. And clearly the world went, well, no, you're not. You don't have any work. <laughs> uh, and we're not sure that you can do any of this. So I sat there unemployed for three months and I was talking to my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And I was like, shit, this is bad. I think I've made a terrible mistake here. <laughs> I don't know if this, I don't know. Like I got to the point where I was calling up gaffer friends of mine saying, guys, I'm down to like 500 bucks here. Like, is there, is there a way I can come and be a third electrics on an ad or something just and like sit in the truck so that nobody really sees me, but I can pick up a paycheck and, you know, and I can pay my rent next week. And it was at that lowest of the low points where I was having huge amounts of self-doubt and disappointment because I was like, shit, I've got to go backwards now and I've got to go like with my tail between my legs, I've got to crawl back in there and say, sorry, guys, I was just joking. Um, I'm back again now. <laughs> I'm not your competition um, I, anymore. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. How funny was that? Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, and then the phone rang and I'd get a, like a, a two-day music video with somebody that was prepared to give me a shot. 
And so there was a lot of that, you know, I had a handful of like shitty little things on my reel, but nothing that really said, this is somebody that we desperately need to work with. Mm-hmm. So I really needed people to, to, to have a, a little bit of a leap of faith on me, which I'm obviously in, in, always grateful for. And I try and pay back wherever I can as well, because it's, if it's not for people sticking their neck out for you on occasions, then nobody's really able to get anywhere. So, so a lot of luck, a lot of patience, um, and a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> oh man, that's rough. We, we've we've heard similar stories uh, from people who, uh, who who were known in one world. I always think about uh, Charles Pappert, who was on the show, who was a really well known uh, Steadicam op. And then one mm-hmm. day he just sold his rig, and people were would hire him thinking that they would get a DP and a Steadicam op together. And he was like, Oh uh, nope, yeah, nope, we gotta yeah, you're gonna have to hire someone else. I don't do that anymore. And, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, but it, but it, it is kind of that breathless moment, which is, you know, months, years, maybe for some people between making that call and then, and then it actually paying off, yep. which, which yep. obviously for you, it, it did pay off. Um, what, eventually, what yeah. was the... it, but it wasn't an overnight thing. <laughs> well, and, and, and to look at your filmography, it's like, you know, getting gradually bigger and bigger and better and better. But, um, I, I don't know if, I don't know how important it was to your your career obviously it it's a movie that made it around the world and we've all uh seen it but the hunt for the wilder people the taika mm-hmm. watiti film is mm-hmm. i think probably the first thing uh, on your filmography that i i had personally seen like that was the first time yep i your, your name popped up was that a big leap or were, were there several other leaps below that 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 kind of led to that moment yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I'd done a few movies by that point, but none none that had any real breakthrough, you know, mm. as far as I'd done it. it that film taught me a lot, and I, I owe that film a great debt, really. It taught me a lot about making a film for an audience, if that makes sense. Like a lot of the projects I'd done before, like it really changed my attitude towards what I thought was an interesting film or the films that I I would like to go and see if that makes sense. I used to think that a film was only a film if there was, you know, huge sacrifice and somebody gets cancer and dies and it's very morose and heavy and, and you know, the, the good guys don't win, the bad guy. You know, I always used to think that, that you couldn't have something that was critically acclaimed but also not necessarily be financially acclaimed but, but, acclaimed, but be accessible, you know, be something that a cross demographic group of people could get different levels of enjoyment from, you know, rather than just pitching a film that would just really resonate with a small, really, really small percentage of moviegoers who would love it, but it might only play in like a handful of cinemas for two weeks and then nobody else really knows about it. But then in 15 years, it comes out as like a great cult hit. And there are some fantastic films that have, have come to light that way. But, um, I, um, but World of People is definitely one that, you know, the phone started ringing a lot more after that one, definitely. So what, what led to that film getting made? Because uh, Taika Waititi wasn't Taika Waititi at that time either. You know, like he was not as well known, say, over here. I mean, I think he'd won the uh, Academy Award for Best Short Film before that. but He was nominated for, for a fantastic film called Two Cars, One Night, uh-huh. a black and white film which was kind of loosely based a lot on his childhood growing up in New Zealand. So he was definitely known in in the southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. but yeah, Hunt for the Wild People really took him. Uh, it helped us both a lot. You know, his next project after that was Thor. Yeah, <laughs> you know, slightly different, a little more money than we had for Wild People. A bit, just a, just a little, I think. But well, a couple so, of zeros maybe. 
So what what brought you to that? And and we can actually back up if you want. Like if I'm if I'm I'm leapfrogging over so many of your projects, and if there's one that you want to talk about, uh, we we have no. That's uh, no. That's okay. It's uh, it's it's no. I think you're right. It's things really changed for me when that film came out. Like mm-hmm. I'd I'd done yeah I'd done a lot of stuff, but but nothing that people had really seen. And honestly, what, not really. With the exception of one film called Down Under that I really liked, that I think is a really good film, but didn't really get a, much of an audience. Um, that's probably the only other film that I thought was a was a good reflection of something that I was really interested in making. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other projects were um, I was grateful to get, but that was kind of to get some runs on the board, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But um, but no, we can start with Waterloo. That's totally fine. Hold, and hold he, that question. But did you just say you want to skip over the stuff before Hunt for the Wilder People? Because I thought for sure we'd talk about Not Suitable for Children. Have you seen that, Ilya? Uh, I, I was watching the trailer. I have to say, yeah, but, yeah. but, no, but you also your your lead your lead actress in that was uh, Sarah Snook, who yeah. of course went on to uh, incredible uh, fame fortune on. And this was, I think, her her first leading lady uh, feature role mm-hmm. debut. Yeah. And now she's of course huge on Succession and tons of other yep. stuff. So yeah. So, and uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah. She's done really well for herself. Yeah. She's great. I yeah, I knew she was the real standout for me from a performance side of things when we did that film. I hadn't met any any of the cast there really, and but I thought she was exceptional and you could see the writing on the wall for her was there. She was she's a super talented lady and I'm I'm thrilled that she's had the success that she's had. Well, I was going to say though that just you know watching the trailer, you you make her you make her look great. You make everything look great. But it's a, it's a really really it looks really solid. And when I realized mm. that she was in it, now I I have to go back and watch it. So now I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, ja- I'm it's a good fun this. film. Yeah. yeah, it's actually pretty. It's cool. I haven't seen it for a wee while, but that was a that was like I had done one film before, but that for me was kind of like my first film. I guess you know I had a, had a, a bit of money over here, which was I think maybe four million Australian dollars, which was which was okay. It was it was. I think maybe nine years ago we did that. Maybe maybe ten years ago. Wait, um, so it says it came out in two, 2012. So yeah, I don't know when. Yeah, there it. you go. Yeah. So we shot it. Uh, yeah, 2011. We would have done it. So yeah, nine years ago. So was that your second narrative feature that was, film? Or? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. The first one I did was a film called Uninhabited with a director Bill Bennett, um, oh. who had won a bunch of AFIs, which is like the Australian version of uh, of the Academy Awards, obviously on mm-hmm. a smaller scale. But that's like how we recognise our own local craft he'd, he'd done a, a few really interesting films and that had again it's like I had no narrative experience really beyond a couple of little short films and I was 29 I think at the time 29 or 30 and he would have been 50 and he'd done eight films some you know like backdrafts some big American films you know, I think he did three studio films with you know Catherine Zetas Jones etc oh, wow. he'd done some big big projects and again I just needed somebody to back me so I'm grateful for that opportunity because completion guarantors are like, who's who is this guy? You know, there's a, there's there's a thousand there's a thousand really experienced available cinematographers, but maybe none of them wanted to go and live on an island in the middle of nowhere and sleep in a tent for five weeks. I was just young and dumb enough to want to do that. We've all had a few of those. Um, right. Well, I, when you say that it was a leap for you to work on long form narrative, like what were the challenges of working on long form that you hadn't encountered doing the short films that you've been doing up until that point? To be honest with you, the, the really big thing was screen direction. I didn't realize how much I didn't know about screen direction. Really? Yeah. I, and I really learned that on the job. I'm pr- I've got a pretty good handle on it now, but at that time, and I was working with Peter Teppelman, who, who was a, who'd done a lot of television and he was used to working really fast and he was very good with it. And so when he, we go through the coverage, 
it did take me a little while to kind of catch up with that. And I felt like that was kind of like the chink in my armor a little bit in the early days. Mm -hmm. And I realized what I didn't know at that point. You know, I was confident, you know, making things look nice and um, framing, but as far as coverage went, particularly working quickly, because we were shooting, I don't know, between five and six minutes a day. And we, I think we only had 11 hours or something like that per day. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're really motoring, you know, we're getting it done. It was all single camera shooting as well too. So that was the real, that was great. I'm, you know, it taught me a lot about screen directing, especially working with him, somebody that had done a lot of TV. So that was, that was the, my big takeaway from that was it made me a lot more aware and better at, at covering um, when, when you talk about screen dialogue. direction, I mean, are you, are, are you mm. talking about kind of the, the axis and like, you know, not violating the axis or, or yeah, eye lines and, you know, mm. you know, cheating backgrounds and saying, well, we're going to shoot this here, but you know, as long as they're looking left here, we'll use this background because this background, the true background doesn't work because there's a bunch of things in short or it's ugly or whatever. So yeah. we'll do that at that location as long as we make sure. And it, which is all straightforward and simple. And we do every day now, but at the time I'm like, hang on a minute. But, and then, you know, I constantly find myself, you know, like, so if I'm like, you know, when you close your eyes and you're like trying to imagine and then you, but you're doing that in front of like 30 people, it doesn't really look so cool. (laughs) This actually, well, this kind of brings me to the whole like filmography of your, of your career is how how you kind of move from one thing to another. Uninhabited looks very much, and and I haven't seen it, but I watched the trailer Mm -hmm. and this is how I I came to wanting to talk to you about Not Suitable for Children. It Mm -hmm. looks like you got your feet wet on this feature with a contained possibly mm-hmm. thriller of some sort where yep. it's a yeah. couple people in a space. Uh, how yep. much of a giant jump is it then to move to Not Suitable for Children, which watching mm. the trailer, you've got lot, it looks like big cast, lots of locations, driving shots, 100%. you know, yeah, yep. it's like, it's a, it like, I don't know how much uh, an inhabited prepares you for Not Suitable for Children. What was that? What was that transition like? What was it like for you? How, how did you have to change your game for, for, for yeah. addressing a, a, a movie of that size? Yeah. You're, you're 100% correct. Um, it was a, a different beast. It was a really different beast going to multiple cast, five people talking in a room, you know, which sounds simple enough, but I'd literally spent, you know, five weeks shooting kind of two people, really. You know, a boy and a girl on a, on a deserted island, a bunch of other stuff happens, but the majority of the film is just two people. It's easy right super super simple bunch of wides in a beautiful location where you want to make the environment part of the story so you tend to go a lot wider um, which is obviously a bit more forgiving for that stuff but yeah you're right I thought I was more prepared than I was and not suitable really taught me a lot because it was a bit of a crash course in what is creatively the most interesting but also the most economical way to cover multiple people who aren't necessarily always sitting down opposite each other at a table right that's like page one filmmaking yeah. Um, but you know they'll they'll sit down for this part of the conversation, but then they'll get up and they'll stand to the window, and then the camera tracks around, and then all of a sudden you're on this side of the line, and then you'll pick up the coverage from that. But how much of the coverage do you do because the beginning of the dialogue, you know, all that stuff, and that was um, it wasn't overwhelming, but it was it was I really I would go home and I would read through the scripts because there was so much dialogue in that film. There's a lot of talking. I would go and read the scripts every night and really think about how, once I got an idea of how Peter was covering the scenes, how I thought he would want to approach the next day's work. And so at least I'd have a bit of a battle plan when I went in there because we didn't necessarily shot list anything. We would block it through in the morning and the actors would contribute to it, which is great and fine, but it just means then you're kind of playing catch up a little bit because we would do maybe, you know, 
six minutes or something like that. And we would spend the majority of the day doing really complicated, but interesting, you know, developing shots and, you know, coming off mirrors and this person to walk in at this point, you know, which was all great and really interesting, but it meant that the afternoon was a real kind of, you know, it was like gone with the wind in the morning and <laughs> home and away in the afternoon, you know what I mean? <laughs> there was a lot of that, but it's a really, it's your observation is absolutely right. And so that the two, even though they're modest budget films, going from two people on an island to five people walking and talking and then party scenes and then multiple locations in a day and all this sort of stuff was a big jump for me. Yeah, and okay. taught me a lot. And I'm, I'm actually really grateful for it, for sure. Those scenes can often be the hardest to shoot. Like those scenes can be a real bear because Unbelievably of, difficult, yeah. yeah Especially you know, when you haven't done it before. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> that was the hardest part of that. if you have done it before, it's just like, they, mm. you know, if you have a scene with five people, then that's probably five sets of coverage you're going to have to make sure you've got. And then if yeah. they move around, if they move three times in the scene, then multiply that five times three. You know, you end up... 100%, yeah. yeah. 100%. Puzzle and pieces, exponential. Yeah. That's exponential puzzle pieces that all kind of have really to fit. Is. Yeah. Well, really I always think that, uh, that a DP's job frequently is to just make sure that whatever you walk out of there with, it will cut together. And yes, how much in your head, how much are you kind of like making in doing the doing the math in your head to be like, OK, you'll be able to cut from this to that or, oh, no, we still need to get a close up of so and so to bridge from this to that. How much of that is going on while you're working on a scene like that? More, the more I do this, the more I think about it from an editorial point of view a lot. Mm. Um, and I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that. And particularly if, you know, the director and I have, a, have an idea of, like, if you take something like Minari, Isaac and I had a really clear idea that it was going to be a single camera shoot. It was going to be an ensemble film. We were going to play it as wide as possible. Um, and we were going to try and be as economical as we could um, from a coverage side of things, because for me, and, and he, he agreed with me on this, it's like that's, that's how you control the pacing of a movie. Um, and I felt like I really wanted Minari, the pacing of that editorially, to be quite languid and quite simple, and I wanted it to be a really observed, simple film from a photographic side of things. I didn't yeah. want any tricks. I didn't want any... I didn't want cranes. I didn't want massive dollies necessarily. You know, like I just wanted... And, that also helped out the fact that it was also incredibly low budget. But beside that point, like I just, just, cre just creatively, that really I wanted- really you with, with your crane problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. There's nothing like not being able to have anything to dictate how you want to shoot something. But I, you know, to be honest, like if that was a $20 million film, it wouldn't be the film that it is. And it wouldn't mm -hmm. be the, the, I think the best version of that film was a film that had very little. Mm. But to, to answer your point, I think as a cinematographer, thinking editorially about the project that you're doing is incredibly important. I think coverage and the way that you cover a scene, for me, I, I think I put more value on that than lighting because that is how you can control the kind of film because if you don't shoot it, you can't use it. And I mean yeah. that in a way that, you know, like I'm a big fan of earning close-ups, not just shooting close-ups for the sake of, oh, but if I want to cut in, if I want to abbreviate it or something like that, you know, I'd... I'd rather, you know, maybe do a mid-shot reverse of somebody listening to somebody else talking if you want to, mm -hmm. you know, fast-forward through a bit of a dialogue. But um, I'm, I, I, I love films that are single camera. I love films that tend to be on the wider side of things. And if, if the performance is working, then there's no need to cut into that. And when you say earn the close-up, what, what do you mean? I've never heard anyone say that before. It, it's an interesting idea. I just, I think when you're doing coverage, I think, I mean, the default is do close-ups because you know i need to see i need to see the detail or the expression of people's faces or because 
I know I'm going to want to, and I'm thinking eyes in the royal eye, directors, editors, they, you know, obviously editors love options, which is perfectly within their reason and, and a lot of the times is great. Particularly when you're doing something like working with kids, you know, when you you know you're going to have to cut away at some point, you know. But I I like holding out for a close up until it's emotionally warranted, and there's not many projects where you get to do that because it's essentially you know it's highlighting something and it's saying this I want you to pay attention to this person at this moment in the film by putting their face you know two stories high on a huge big cinema screen. You know, you know, so I think that, that rather than just doing it for the sake, of, if you do it too many times, I think it just loses a lot of the impact of what I think that shot's designed for. Yeah, I just, I mean, the way I approach cinematography is, I, and this is why I always thought I wanted to be a, a photojournalist and why photography is still incredibly important to me on a personal level, is I love the honesty and the observation of that. And I try and, I try and bring that into a lot of the work that I do. Like, I don't like influencing things too much. Like, my lighting tends to be relatively simple. Um, and I like to try and give the actors as much space and flexibility, be it from a, like turning up on the day and blocking, even though we might have shot listed it. They might come in and say, you know what, my character's not walking through the door at this point. I feel like I'm making a chili con carne at the stove and then I go and sit down and watch TV or whatever it is, you know, and being able to, to listen to them and hear why they're saying that. And then if it's a better idea, and a lot of the times it is a better idea, um, then being able to be flexible enough from a lighting and a framing side of things to give them that option if that's what makes the film better because it's in everybody's interest to make the best version of that film that you can regardless of your department, I think. Mm. Hey, I, I want to be somewhat sensitive to time here because uh, I still feel like we have a, quite a bit of stuff to talk about. Uh, in particular, I want to talk about your relationship with uh, Abe Forsyth because, oh, yeah. uh, of course, uh, he's been on the show. We we talked. Um, oh, has he? Uh, oh, cool. Uh, yeah, and uh, after his uh, premiere at Sundance 2019 of Little Monsters, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I've now gone back and, and watched the movie again since it's na- it's here. It's uh, on now on Hulu, I believe, and oh, cool. uh, really, really enjoyed it. And I, I got to say that if you watch a movie that I, I think that you have so much fun watching and enjoying, you think that maybe the people who are making this movie also had a lot of fun making it. I, I, it has so much like VFX and there's two dozen children and there's mm. animals. I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff going on in here. Was it a logistical and struggle uh, to, to get to get it done or was it as much fun as all the characters seem like they're they're also having on the screen at the same time? Um, the first part. Okay. There were definitely some fun moments, 100% some fun moments. But, I mean, if you look at that film on paper, you go, here's 10 kids under the age of six plus some major Hollywood actors plus a bunch of local actors plus midsummer in the belting heat plus animals. You go, what? No. What are you guys thinking? That's a non-starter right there. <laughs> so looking at your filmography, uh, Little Monsters looks to me mm-hmm. sort of like at the beginning of a swing for you two into all things mm-hmm. monsters. It's like monster. It's like Love and Monsters, know, Martha the Monster, Stranger, Stranger Things. Stranger Things. We've got to talk about Stranger Things. I mean, so, Yeah, 100%. So, so tell me, do you feel like you're, you're getting typecast now? Now, Minari is a complete departure, 100%. There's not... There's yeah, no, not, no monsters. <laughs> Uh, I was well, waiting. No, for, I was a, saying to my wife, like, I bet there's a werewolf in here at some point, and then there wasn't. A werewolf, there's no werewolf. I thought it was going to be a ghost story of like you know the, yeah. the person who had that land before was going to come back. Yeah, but no, it's, no. it's like all of a sudden it's Children of the Corn. Yeah, yeah it's all like Dust Till Dawn or something like that. Like the film just changes tact halfway through and becomes so a vampire awesome. movie. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you know, you're absolutely like in all in all sincerity, you're actually right. Like I did, I was on a uh, on a run of doing a lot of supernatural stuff, just not because I was actively seeking out supernatural work or thriller or horror or whatever it is. It just kind of it's sort of how it worked out. But on the back of yeah, little monsters and then um, Stranger Things and Love and Monsters, and I also did a short film called Martha the Monster. So um, it's all adding up. On the back of those ones, especially after the Paramount film that I really enjoyed, I, I just, because the films were, were you, know, you know, something like Stranger Things, which is massive, and the Paramount film was massive, and, you know, the scale are uh, so big, it's, you kind of can get a little bit lost in the technical and the logistics. Mm-hmm. And that's why Minari on so many levels is so important to me because I come from indie films. I always love indie films. You know, I've been lucky enough to be able to dip my toes in like the the blockbuster big budget world. But the story of Minari was something that I just instantly loved. And I honestly, I love the fact that it was a tiny film because mm-hmm. you have so much creative control over a, over a project like that. And when you have a director like Isaac, where you're completely coming at it from the same angle and you want to make the same kind of film. And I was, I was speaking to my agent. It's like I, on the back of all those big films, I just, I said, I really want to do a small indie grounded, great story, um, pure filmmaking kind of a film. And that for me was Minari. But let's talk a little bit about Minari. Yeah, I mean, it, it in a lot of ways is kind of. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe it's going back, you know, to to your earlier stuff like Uninhabited, where you know it feels very natural light, even though I don't I don't know what percentage of it were location and what percentage were sets, but it but it but it, it is a very naturalistic film that finds a lot of kind of natural beauty in this Arkansas uh, landscape, which I believe was actually Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken. Oklahoma, yeah, we shot it just out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. last year. Yeah, I mean, it, but it, but it's it's very gorgeous and it's and it's very character driven. The whole the whole movie is character driven. I mean, can you talk a little bit from a cinematographer standpoint? Uh, how different is your job when you're making something that's so character driven versus something where you have to deal with you know monster suits and CGI and stuff like that? I I love it. I like I like both for different reasons. But on the like I said, on the back of the run that I that I'd had to do a film like Minari was was like exhaling. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was everybody doing it because they loved the story and loved Isaac. Mm-hmm. You know, down from you know me to the producers to the cast to everybody, because you know it was a sub two million dollar independent film. So you know, people are doing it because they want to be involved, not because they're picking up a paycheck or anything. You know, people are doing it for the right reasons. And we shot listed the entire, Isaac and I shot listed the entire film. I actually had about four weeks pre on the ground with Isaac, which was really great. And a lot of it was just, which is which one of my favorite parts about pre. And it's a difference. Like when you do bigger projects, the irony is you actually get less access to directors mm-hmm. than you do on smaller projects. You know, I've done tech scouts on, you know, $40 million films without the director, you know, because they're busy doing other things. You know what I mean? And so you kind of, cause they often come into the project a little bit later, the difference with with um, Minari's because it was such a personal story. It's Isaac's autobiographical story, essentially. Obviously, with a bit of creative license, um, it was he had a, a clear kind of emotional concept of of what the scenes were about, and and I picked up on that pretty early on, and and I think was able to kind of interpret that in a way that he was really receptive to. Mm-hmm. Um, so literally, pre production was like four weeks of him and I sitting across. The table from each other shot listing and talking about scenes and whose scene is it where does it come in the arc what happens before it what happens after it and so 
by the time we actually came to shoot it on the day, we had a very clear idea of how we wanted to shot list it, but we also had room to, to for interpretation when actors come in and change the blocking, which is all great. Yeah, it, it wasn't hugely different from how we thought about it. It's interesting, you know, a lot of the times things change a lot, but we, we really stay true to the simplicity of how we wanted that film to be. I was really keen on playing it as wide as possible. Um, I shot most of the film on a 29 millimeter lens. The majority of the work in like all the work in the trailer was an actual period specific trailer that we bought and put on locations like it's 100% location there's no yeah, I was wondering if that was like a set somewhere or if that was no uh... so the exterior and the interior is the same oh wow and it's all on location yeah so we built the barn which you obviously know when you watch the end of the film you realize why we built it yeah um, but but apart from that everything else is Location, hundred percent location film. But in shooting in a trailer sounds extremely constraining in terms of what you're able to do with the camera. But it doesn't feel constrained when I watch it. When I when I first read the script, I'd just come off those shows where everything is built and you pull walls, you're pulling ceilings, you're, you know, all that stuff because you can afford to, you can do it. So my my real issue, not issue, but my concern in pre production was how difficult it would be when you've got five actors in a wide shot in a trailer where you can't pull anything, you know, and you have one point of access, which is a narrow doorway when you've got to get all your equipment in, all your personnel, just how slow all that stuff is. And then, of course, nine times out of ten, when you put a camera in a house, it's in a doorway because because that, that's the widest point, the furthest yeah. point back you can get. <laughs> exactly. So then you're plugging the only access point. So it's like just from a logistical side of things, how are we going to pull this off without everybody tearing their hair out because stuff's taking way longer than it needed to. And it was a little, there was a little bit of a teething thing with that in the first place. The most difficult thing about that location in, in the very beginning was the heat because we shot it in, you know, June, July last year in Tulsa. And oh, it, wow. was, it was just baking. And, it, you know, I don't know what it got up to, but it, it would have got up into the 90s or so inside that trailer at some point. I mean, like, you know, because... We had to turn the air conditioner off when we're rolling for sound, obviously. So we try and have this period like 1983 air conditioner rattling away while we're blocking it through and it would sort of get, sort of get okay. But then, you know, it's cloudless. There's no wind. Um, there's sometimes 15 people inside that trailer and then you'd do two takes and it'd be 10 minutes and it, the temperature would just be out of control. Oof. So that was really, that was really tough, um, which obviously if you're shooting on a stage, you don't have those kinds of issues. Did it, do you think it slowed you down or do you think that it made you come up with faster ways to do all that stuff? We drew a line in the sand and said, we, we have to do something about this because, you know, we've got elderly actors and we've got kids and, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and, you know, it's like when everybody's hot, you, you know, sit in a hot car and you drive around for a while, everybody falls asleep. Yeah, it's yeah. just not conducive to working like that. So that we got onto that and it was fine in the end, but that was tough. And that was just a byproduct of budget and time constraints, you know? That was, yeah, that was tough. But yeah, all location, all location work. Most of it went down on that farm with like a couple of extra days um, all in houses, yeah. But I like the fact that it's location and we didn't build anything because it doesn't, nothing really feels like a set quite so much, you know? Because, mm -hmm. you know, when you look at the ceiling in that trailer, the stains are from watermark stains from the previous people that owned that trailer. You know, so much of the, like the patina production design was was, you know, Yong did a lot of that herself, which is great, but so much of the really simple stuff, like the stains around certain things, um, like the taps, like, like the rust stains in the bottom of the plug hole, which is only in like a handful of shots, was all legitimate stuff, which, you know, if you're on a low budget film, maybe you don't, you skip those details if, you, if you're painting things, but it was, 
I don't know, it was it helped legitimize for me the fact that those guys were so, you know, they, they put all of their hopes and dreams in and all their money into this environment and said, this is our new American dream. This is the future for us as a family. Yeah. And even that is pretty poor, you know, from, yeah. a, from a production design side of things. So that's why I, I think it was, even though it was hard, I think it was the right decision in the end for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and what lessons do you think you take from that to the next like bigger project that you that you might find yourself on? It's interesting. Like everything, or like a lot of filmmaking problems go away when you throw money at it. That's yeah. obviously the main solution is money. And on something like Stranger Things, I'm fortunate to have the ability to be able to do that. But I still I don't do it for the sake of doing it. Um, you know, everybody's still accountable as a head of department at cinematography, you know, as a, as a DP, you have to be accountable for where you spend the money and you can be clever about where you do and where you don't, you know, like pick your battles, know when to hold them, know when to fold them and know when it's right to invest in something because creatively it will be a better version of that product. Mm-hmm. But um, with Stranger Things, I kind of, when I first started there, I was like, oh, I could probably do it just with, just with, you know, 118k and the governor's like i think you need three and i'm like i know i need three but will they give us three and they're like what are you talking about of course they'll give us three <laughs> you're on netflix's like <laughs> flagship show <laughs> yeah 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 that's right so and it took me a little while to come around to that because i'm so ingrained of of knowing the, the you know the least amount that i can get away with that doesn't compromise what i want that still provides the service that we're all trying to do mm-hmm. so that was interesting when i went on to stranger things is that i um I still come at it from an indie side of things, you know, like my lighting approach tends to be relatively simple, but obviously then you throw in something like the mall and it's like when we built the mall, um, we didn't have the final scripts yet. So we weren't sure what was going to happen. We had a feeling something big was going to go down because we had this awesome, fantastic period specific, um, beautifully dressed mall, but we weren't sure what that was. And of course it turned out to be that big epic fight scene in, in episode eight mm. where the monster comes down. And obviously when the monster's there, everything needs to flicker. Right. And when we, when we did the lighting for the mall in the first place, we didn't necessarily plan on that having to be a requirement, but the beauty of something like stranger things is you can go, well, you know, that quarter of a million dollars worth of neon that we had custom make, we need to make that flicker. So now we need to go and, take all of the transformers out of the entire um, neon setup of that mall, change them over to ones that can flicker. Oh, and while we're at it, we'll just, we'll just repatch the entire mall, the entire mall through a lighting desk <laughs> so that we can control each door independently. We control the neons independently. We control the everything. So, you know, like only on a show like Stranger Things you can do that because, again, coming from my indie side of things, I'm like, how much of this can we do in camera? We should try and do as much of this stuff in camera as we possibly can Yeah. because that will be the, the, the most honest, the most legitimate version of this and not just relying on VFX to pull it off but using VFX to enhance what's already there, which for me is always like the best version of VFX. So how do you take that aesthetic of yours, though, and fuse it into something like Stranger Things, which is a very stylized show? Like it's shot, mm. it's shot to evoke that poltergeist E.T. Right. 1980s aesthetic. Um, yeah. Like how much of that is maybe just baked into how they color correct it? How much of that is coming? Is no, there's a lot you? of it's from a lighting planet. Yeah, it was very different for me because it was because I'm used to being more um, honest, I guess, in my lighting. Yeah. Um, which, you know, obviously when you're interior, when you're inside, a lot of it is because it's all prac based and all that sort of stuff, which is great, which I love. But like a lot of the night exteriors um, have that Spielbergian 
you know, Haskell Wexler, you know, dialed up um, three quarter blue backlight scenario, which which was a specific thing from that era, which we're all familiar with. So that was my my natural reaction wouldn't necessarily be to light it that way, but that's the legacy of the show. So obviously, I I, I walked into a situation that that Tim and the brothers had established the look of the show, and, and one important legacy of that show was from a visual side of things to feel like it still fits in the same family. Yeah. Um. So that was one of the first conversations that we had, but within that, they were always really open to saying, "Well, I, you know, it doesn't have to look exactly the same, but there are some things that we want to feel like we want Hawkins to feel like Hawkins, but." You know, when you're opening up new sets or you're building, or you know, you're getting to establish the look of a particular location, then, then please feel free to put your stamp on it. So, like when we went and did the fun fair, when I was speaking to the to the art guys, the production design department about that, it's like I want to try and do as much in camera practical lighting as po- as possible and let the set do all the heavy lifting. And maybe we had a couple of machines floating around if there was a dead area and I need a little bit more ambience. But I didn't necessarily want to have to light each shot specifically. I really wanted to, for them, when they're walking down, so it was it all came down to like how narrow we'd build the alleyways between each of the, the game areas so that I knew if I put this certain amount of practical lights, then if they're in the middle, they would have enough light coming from either side. And if I changed the colour of them frequently, then it would feel like they were lit from, from the location itself rather than from a moon box above or something like that. And, you know, I wanted it to feel warm and fun and nice and summery and all that stuff. So I don't know. I guess that's kind of like the hybrid indie blockbuster world where, I mean, I still want it to feel grounded, but um, and I guess r- relatable, I guess, as much as possible. For a heightened show like Stranger Things, it's, it's a bit of a tightrope. Uh, that's fascinating. It's it's such an amazing show, and and again, it's it's like the flag. Yeah. It's like one of the biggest hits Netflix has ever had. It's total water cooler fodder for you know every season. It's that comes cool, out. isn't it? It's really fun. Yeah, and uh, it, it it really is. It, it's one of those things when you realize there's a nostalgia for a style that you mm. didn't even realize you had nostalgia for until until someone right. presents it to you. And you know, I mean, I feel yep. like J.J. Uh, Abrams Super Eight, which was shot by Larry mm-hmm. Fong, w- was a similar yep. thing. Um, Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, those kinds of things are a lot of fun. Well, I think that's a good place to end it then. Uh, before we go, though, is there a place people can find your work online? Oh, sure, yeah. It's just I have a website which has got a, you know, a handful of commercials and some trailers for some films that I've done, which is just my name, LachlanMilne.com, mm-hmm. um, or The Gram. Hit me up on The Gram. Oh, yes, The Gram. <laughs> what's, your, what's your Instagram name? Is it the same? I believe it's the same. Okay. Yeah, it's, I went through a bunch of creative options and settled with my name. Yeah, that, that's a good way. That, 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 <laughs> that, that way people know it's really you versus like, you know, having to do like Locky 3275. Yeah, that's so. a, yeah, yeah. Super cool. Yeah, camera guy. <laughs> 17. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I can't wait to see what you have next. And uh, yeah, great, great work. Everybody, please check out Minari when it comes out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great stuff, man. Thank you. Pleasure. No, thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it, guys. Thanks a lot. So that was Lachlan Milne. Run, do not walk to see Minari. Check it out. Uh, whether it uh, sweeps the Oscars or not, it is a it is a beautiful character piece, brilliantly photographed, and uh, it's just it's just an amazing piece of work. 
So Ilya, I, I I hear that it is time for us to pay some bills. Yes, indeed. Let's let's pay some bills. Uh, the fine folks over at Aperture uh, have a new product. Aperture makes uh, really high quality and really low cost lights for the motion picture industry. And they did start off sort of like as a YouTuber light sort of company. They really were like, hey, you you people who uh, are are trying to make a uh, a YouTube channel or trying to do uh, whatever it is, here we make a really good high quality low dollar item and they really set mm-hmm. the bar and moved out into the world in a, in a way that other companies particularly Chinese manufacturers weren't able to do they've now faced a ton of competition a lot of companies have come up with lesser products less expensive products and rather than aperture just saying hmm, you know what we're going to we're going to stay at this level of making high quality low dollar lights They've decided to make even lower dollar lights to compete with the stuff that's Whoa. coming out, uh, the, the knockoff sort of stuff out, out of other factories. And uh, they have a new product called the Amaran 100D. And the 100D is a ridiculously bright little light that's only daylight colored. It's very, very simple, but it does have the app control so you can control it with your phone if that's uh, interesting. But it's ridiculously, ridiculously bright and it costs 199 bucks. And of course, (laughs) yes. So uh, for less than the price of your video game console, for less than the price of your gym membership, you can own a professional, uh, you know, how how big is it? Small, very small, but very bright and very impressive. Mm -hmm. They claim 39,500 lux at one meter. And I I just want to say that that's in, in the era of like tungsten light units, which most people will be thinking of, that's somewhere in sort of like the 300 watt pepper sort of range of like light output. It's very, mm. it's a very, very bright little tiny light and it costs 199 bucks and it comes with a reflector and you can also use all the other sort of adapter types of things. And it, and for people who really, really are on a budget or maybe they're used to using still photo equipment, lighting equipment like umbrellas, there's a built in umbrella holder. So you can pop an umbrella in there. You can point it at your subject and uh, really you can light up a room. You can light up a large space. It's a perfect sort of hair light. You can do all kinds of stuff with it, but it's super bright. So if you want to use it as a key light or a fill light or any of the other stuff, you can do it. And for 199 bucks, it's kind of ridiculous. And I know a lot of people who just have bought them and like leave them in their car. I'm like, not kidding. They're going to go work somewhere. And it's like, oh, you know what? I just want to have something in my car I can forget about. And then if I need a light, I can go run and grab it and, and bring it out. It's like, it's, <laughs> and, and, and really it, it doesn't look like anything except for like maybe uh, something sort of space agey or, or whatever. But the, the Amaran 100D, really impressive. They make a couple of other lights, a little more expensive. They're all in the same family. They make a 200 and they make an X, which means it will switch between the daylight and tungsten. But if you just need really cheap and high quality light it's it's really worth taking a look at at what they're doing at aperture it's it's kind of ridiculous they they've um, i mean really it's it's impressive i'm just impressed with how aperture through this entire pandemic seems to be rolling out uh new gear and i don't know if it's stuff that they developed you know before the pandemic hit but it's like that like there's a kind of a constant stream of new and innovative gear coming out of Aperture this whole time. Well, uh, they develop out of China, so uh, they had a handle on the pandemic way before we did. They also got hammered by the pandemic way before they, we they did. They really did, so they were, they were first, of course. But I'll also say that I think last year, and this is, I have no knowledge of this, this is me guessing, but based on the amount of business we did with Aperture and with everyone else I know who works with Aperture and what I, it looks like Aperture is doing, I would wager to say that 2020 was probably the best year they ever they ever had. I think 2020, oh, wow. 
I, I never saw more of their gear being used on YouTube. I know that was like sort of like their big sort of bread and butter market. Uh, I've never talked to more film students. I've never talked to more professionals. I've never talked to more people who are buying gear and stick it in their car. I mean, it's like it, it's kind of crazy. So wow. so usually we, we talk for like 20, 30 seconds. I know I've talked for like five minutes now about Aperture, but this is it, I mean, go buy your Aperture stuff from Hot Rod, you know, support us, support the show. But uh, this is totally something worth uh, worth taking a look at, especially if you got a couple hundred bucks in your pocket and you're like, I need a decent and very bright light. I would say these kind of remind me a little bit of the, the throw of like nook lights. If you remember those from the tungsten days, I do remember. Nook so lights, it's kind yeah. of like having like a, a modern led nook light that doesn't get hot and doesn't burn your fingers. So that's, that's kind of what nice. it is. So anyway, man, I used to, I had, I had those leather gloves I had to wear to move around the lights before. <laughs> and now short ends. So Ben, it's uh, it's short end time. What what's your uh, what's your short end this week? Uh, I have an interesting short end, beca- and uh, it's sort of a, a shout out a little bit to our uh, our composer Kaze Alatrachi, who I'm constantly talking about being sort of a jack of all trades and master of all of them. Mm. He recently put together a VFX reel, and not to be too self serving, but two of my projects made his VFX reel. Uh, one of them was uh, Twenty Seconds to Live, and one was a play that I did that had a live alien invasion. Uh, of CGI aliens. Uh, uh, the play was uh, an adaptation of the Vonnegut book, The Sirens of Titan. But he has, he just put together a VFX reel and uh, we'll include a link in the show notes to his reel. But it blew my mind. Kaze is self taught. Uh, I, I, I can't stress this enough. Until uh, about 10 years ago, uh, it was maybe a little more than 10 years ago, Kaze w- had only been a composer. And he's, he's an, a phenomenal composer. I love his music. I love his work. I love working with him. But about 10 years ago, he, he got the bug to direct a short. And that kind of opened... It, it's called Appointment. And uh, I actually edited it for him. And it uh, doing that project, I think, kind of like opened his mind to all the things that he could do. And then he made another short called In Lucidity that's loaded with insane visual effects. And he taught himself like Cinema 4D and After Effects and Maya and all these programs. And I know I've mentioned on on here before that he works as a colorist, but I kind of just want everyone to check out his visual effects reel. It's it's pretty amazing stuff. Some of them are his films. Some of them are films that he's uh, he's done for other people. Again, like I said, he's got a couple of shots on there from my stuff, but it actually kind of goes back to what we were saying uh, in our close focus thing, you know, because Case had already been in the business for a number of years when he decided to start doing this. And he uh, again, self-taught from the ground up in all these visual effects programs that are, I have to say, I look at them, I look at, at stuff like, um, cinema 4d and I think life is too short. I, there's no way I'm going to, I'm sure that if I dedicated my life to learning this, I could get okay at it, but I'm not that kind of artist. And Kays is the kind of person who says, fuck that and dives into, you know, all of these, you know, Houdini and blender and Cinema 4D and Maya and After Effects and Commotion and like all these programs. And, you know, in order to even do the work, you have to learn the program and the programs are not always that easy to learn. And he uh, and I think that if you look at his VFX reel, you'll see that, you know, kind of the, the, the proof is there. Like this is somebody who I would say for the last 
six, seven years has been working really hard at learning how to do this and he's excellent at it. And so, uh, I, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd give him a free plug, uh, just because I, I'm so impressed with, with what he's done, uh, in, in such a short period of time. I will have to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. So, um, I'll, I'll take a look. Cool. Yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll include a, a link in the show notes. Like I said, uh, okay, so so my short end this week is uh, something I never thought I would say. Uh, Britney Spears. Uh, Britney Spears Whoa. is my short end this week. Um, I watched the new documentary. Not not Christina Aguilera. Nope. But Chris, nope. Britney Spears. Britney okay. Spears. Britney Spears, who I think's got to be in her forties now. It's got to you know. But but Britney Spears uh, making headlines now for entirely different reasons. Of course, uh, I remember I remember all the different sorts of uh, you know tabloid sensational fodder that she caused and uh created uh, over the years where i should say actually really that the news media created it and caused it but they yeah. chose to make britney spears their poster child for what sort of behavior uh we expect from our uh our, our pop stars our, our idols out mm. there and the new documentary is called framing britney spears and you can watch it on hulu and it's put together by the new york times and it explains something that I was only vaguely aware even existed, which is um, a conservatorship. A conservatorship is really is a court appointed trustee who essentially makes sure that the conservator, the, the person who's been assigned this person, is well taken care of because they are unable to take care of themselves. And usually it's older people or maybe people who don't have uh, all of their, their mental facilities uh, to be able to live a productive life. They, they need someone else to manage their finances. Well, Brittany was assigned a conservatorship uh, many years ago, and her father was basically put in charge of her estate. And she had a really, really successful run in Vegas, made a ton of money, but she doesn't have any control over her finances nor does she have any ability to speak in public and the conservatorship pretty much controls every aspect of her life. And it turns out that some fans of hers and were watching very closely her social media account and discovered that something seemed kind of off in the way she was posting. And it almost feels like hidden coded messages going out into the world and it started a whole movement of people you might have seen out there, uh, hashtag free Britney, and they became T-shirts yeah. and everything else. And these people who are hardcore Britney Spears fans who who learned about what was going on with her have brought attention to this court-appointed conservatorship, which prevents her from essentially living her life. And uh, the documentary does a really good job of breaking it all down. And just this week really uh there's been a, a significant change even a new update from uh from the documentary if you watch it which is that a corporation now has co-conservatorship along with britney's father and he no longer is going to be the sole arbiter of her life and uh this is what she weird. wanted yes now, that is so weird but this is exactly what she wants she she actually she doesn't seem like she's totally against the idea of oh, conservatorship. Wait, she wants her father she wants the conservatorship she wants the conservatorship but she really doesn't want her father involved and she essentially has kind of gone on her own version of like uh, a work stoppage, a work strike to get her father from being responsible for her life. So now a, a corporation has come in. Uh, the corporation will be partially in control. I think at least 50 percent control of her finances and everything else. And maybe she'll go back to work. Maybe not. But at least she's going to have more control over her own life. And it's really, really kind of crazy and creepy to see 
the whole thing unfold. And it's like, it's not like Brittany was particularly close with her father. He kind of came in at a very opportune time. And before you know it, he'd hired some lawyers and now he was responsible for, for everything having to do with yeah. his daughter. I know. So, but, but framing Britney Spears is enjoyable to watch. They do spend, I think maybe a little bit t- too long reminding you who Britney Spears is, but the cast of interviewees, the characters from her life, the people who uh, you get to that do participate in the documentary, they're all wonderful. And I think you get a much better, much more well-rounded version of who Britney Spears is and what she's trying to do and accomplish now. And frankly, the whole reason she probably got the conservatorship in the first place was because she had postpartum depression. But I don't think she was ever diagnosed with it. And it all comes out in the uh, in the, the documentary and totally worth, you know, uh, 90 minutes of I your time. Plenty of yeah. people get postpartum depression and their dads don't come in and take over their lives. Exactly. Well, you know, uh, she had a very public life for a very long time, but it's yeah. uh but yeah, and it, it's, uh, it's troubling and disturbing, but it looks to me like, uh, possibly she's getting what she wants now and more of, uh, of a happy ending, uh, or at least a happier ending, a brighter future potentially for her. And it's totally worth watching. And it, uh, it, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a good, solid documentary about something that completely was not on my radar. And I'm super impressed at her fans, how her fans essentially were able to read between the lines and really, in a way, contribute and help her to get the, to get the word out about this. So which is interesting. Oh, I will check that out. Yeah. Uh, total total side note. But the uh, podcast that I had recommended several weeks ago. Uh, the Lolita podcast. She, she, the woman who hosts it, goes into sort of modern incarnations of the Lolita story, and it's really a misinterpretation of the Nabokov book. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she spends a little time talking about Britney Spears, like you know when Britney Spears was seventeen and how uh, over sexualized she was in the media, and and how kind of creepy that was. And her public persona was that of virginal. It was the slutty virgin. It was the Madonna and the whore. Yeah. It was like, it was that, you know, it was a, it, there was a lot of, of written about that at the time. And the way she was treated actually in, in, in the, in the tabloids is, was really terrible. And the paparazzi, yeah. you know, actually, uh, turns out she, she didn't live too far from me. Uh, she used to live here in studio city. So that's, oh, uh, wow. yeah. And the paparazzos were regulars outside of her place, wherever, wherever that was. I didn't, didn't look it up, but they mentioned studio city a couple of times in the, uh, in the, in the documentary. Well, cool. Um, I will definitely check out that documentary. Um, so Ilya, who do we need to thank this week? Wow. Uh, good question. I think Kay's Alatrax, you should thank us because I made yeah, it my short Yeah, I think end, so. But... I think he owes us thanks. So let's just let's just yeah. cross him off. Let's just skip him. Skip him. No thanks to Kay's no Alatrax so, for all the for all the fine music that we used. <laughs> yes. And and frankly, you know, it's been seven years. Seven years we've done this podcast. We should we should mention that again next time. But but uh, has Kay's given us more music since the music he did seven years ago? Or is, is he constantly- uh, he, he's given us a little more okay. music to like for for uh, war story stuff. So really, we've been thanking him profusely for hundreds of episodes for something that me mostly did seven years ago. That's true. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that's right. just factual. All right. Great. Good. OK. Yeah. Just want to make sure we'll thank him again next week, too. But, you know, we will. OK. Yeah, this guy is well thanked. How, how many thanks pay his mortgage? Just just <laughs> I'm going to guess zero. Zero thanks pay his mortgage. <laughs> Uh, anyway. All right, let's thank Ben Katz too. Let's thank Ben Katz. He's got he's got a you know uh, a lot of work cut out for him. He he does a lot of stuff for us. He was I Ben kept, Katz actually reached out to me while I was sick and uh, and and was very nice. Sure, and said I mean the podcast that, that is really me. nice of him. That's great. No, so. it was very nice. Uh, all right, and Alana Cody, who's uh, making us do this so late at night, 
um, uh, because forcing us, forcing both us both at gunpoint. I don't know how she has a gun at my head because I'm miles away from you. But. Oh yeah, yeah, she's got it at mine. All right, uh, a lot and, of- but she's got she's she's still kicking all the ass, getting some amazing amazing uh, cinematographers for us to interview. We uh, just did two this past weekend. Pretty both of them noteworthy, huge, amazing DPs. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, okay, well, Ben, uh, until next week, sayonara. We will see you then. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.